0: Welcome everyone, got another episode of live Bullions coming at you, we're joined by Costa as always. Hello. Hello. And um, this week we have a local Adelaide developer from Mini Mammoth Games, David McCann. McCann? McCann? McCann. McCann, you got McCann. it. McCann, Hey, Why would I think it's McCann? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Um, so, Mini Mammoth, you guys have had a bunch of games. I remember... I met you guys when you, I think you were going through AIE. Um, was it the GDML? Is that how you say it?
1: Yeah. So that's the third year for AIE.
0: Mm. And that's like the, and you guys did that, didn't you? The the business plan thing?
1: Yeah, that's us. We um, went through that and now we're part of the incubator and that's just running out now.
0: Oh, nice. Is that based still at um, Game Plus?
1: The incubator is, but we're not.
0: Oh, Okay.
2: Yeah, nice. Oh, awesome. Whereabouts are you based?
1: Um, so, we're out in Collinswood in the ABC building on floor six. Oh, hello. that's cool.
2: That's awesome. I was looking at there's that view of... behind you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you won't find that in Games Plus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're,
2: we're, uh, there's like a couple of TV like things going on there as well.
1: Yeah. So, they I think they do most of the radio out here with ABC and they also have a couple of studios. So, they're I think they're doing beep and morp or something at the moment on floor seven.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's, that's cool. what is there other game studios in the ABC building?
1: No, it's just us at the moment. Um and we hope to grow big enough that you can't fit. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> moving to the older uh, Mighty Kingdom place. But I don't think you're gonna get a view like that. No, nah,
1: we're we're happy here. Um Philip can keep his old place <laughs> yeah he wants to. Oh, okay. That's
0: that's interesting, yeah. <laughs> or at least so, they are
1: at the moment. I don't actually know anything particularly special about that.
0: Well, they they grow so fast. They're, they're probably smart to hold onto as much property as they can. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, go on.
1: I was just going to say we moved out here so that we could take NDAs and stuff like that because there's too many of us for Games Plus.
0: Oh, uh, sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, actually, that's worth mentioning. You guys have... Your team grows all the time. You've you've put out a bunch of uh mobile I remember um Snackwitch was the one that I saw that had all the um that's the ads going for it on Facebook. Um Snackwitch, <laughs> Ocean Harvest, Critter Capture, uh Bundamel Rush, Press for Time, Cosmic Keeper, Pinching Pigeon, Chroma Cannon, Arepitus. I don't even know how to pronounce that.
1: <laughs> the Areptius. Areptius. Is that the Come first on, game? Alex. <laughs> no, so that's a visual novel we haven't got to build yet. Um, it needs a lot more upfront costs covered for it. Sure, the art is very involved. So
0: sure. So um, and, and you guys are sticking uh to um, mobile games
1: for the foreseeable future. Um, sure, we're making a nice niche for ourselves in the hyper casual market. So.
0: Yeah, how, how have you found that market?
1: Uh that's a complicated question. <laughs> um like it's it's a good place creatively, right? Cuz you can make a lot of different stuff and you never have to make one project for the next 6 years. Um but on the other side of it like it's it's an evolving market, it's constantly changing. So you're trying to keep track of that when you're making new products in it. And you're having to manage a lot of publishers who, like when you go through schooling or whatever, you learn publishers, yeah, you give them a pitch and they'll give you lots of money. Yeah. Um, and that's how that works. But actually, no, that's not how that works at all. Most of the publishers, particularly in the hyper-casual market, though I get the impression this is pretty consistent across the mobile game development um, sphere, they're all about what they can get for free mm. and what they can get for cheap. And so a lot of the time you have conversations with them where it's like they want all this stuff and you go, cool. So like if we do the math, that's $20,000 for the next month and you get three developers making that and they go, oh, we weren't talking work for hire. You'll just make that for us, please. (laughs) How do
0: they they think you're making
1: the money? (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Like they're they're always pulling the, well, you'll make lots of money when we publish a game. Oh, sure. But you need to meet the metrics to publish the game. Yeah. So it's a complicated little mess on that one. Are they funny also... Thing. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say it's funny because like, the game they all love to cite as like, the starting place of the hypercasual market, for nine months it didn't make any money at all. And then suddenly people found it and it made lots of money. So,
2: <laughs> What game is that?
1: That's Flappy Bird.
2: Fluffy Bird. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, yep, 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 yep.
0: That was so successful. The guy shut it down. Shut it
1: down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so good real. times.
2: So, so how many of you are in uh, Mini Mammoth at the moment? And what's what's uh, what's your role and what's everyone else's role?
1: So there's eight of us. Um, uh, if you're talking trade, like there's two artists, two programmers and four designers. Um, I'm one of those. Uh, but then there's like, like we are much more put together than most indies a year in when it comes to like the business side of things because of the GDML. So like all of the boring jobs are also covered by those eight people. So CEO, <laughs> um, CTO, poor second in charge. He has to make sure your office doesn't burn down when everyone has arguments. <laughs>
0: <The> Silvio Dante.
1: <laughs> so yeah, like it's it's many hats kind of situation. I'm sure you guys get that. No, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean that's
0: that's great that you've gone to, to eight. How so if you're you're the CEO, how are you finding managing or, you know, leading eight people or seven other people?
1: Yes, managing eight people. I definitely <laughs> am good at that. No, like it's a lot, but it's not the game development stuff's actually really easy. Um the thing I've found that's like a big adjustment is all the other stuff um constantly talking to people chasing up interviews podcasts um, looking out for investors all of that stuff there's like a lot to learn like even even with a graduate diploma there's way more stuff than could have been covered by that that i need to just already be an expert at before i even know it exists
2: yeah And, um, th- does that, does that, uh, course at AIE, what kind of business things does it cover? Like, is it, you know, do you, do you do your business model canvas and all that sort of stuff? Like, does it go deeper than that? Does it go into like negotiation or is it kind of pretty broad?
1: Um, do you guys know Richard who teaches it?
2: Yeah. 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 yeah from, Richard uh, Taylor? from uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from,
0: um, Oh I'm blanking. Um, uh, Split Symmetry? Split Symmetry.
2: Sorry, it's Uh, the end of the day. Yeah, we chatted to him before. We did chat to him, yes.
1: So, he's got a really um, hands-on, like down-to-earth approach to teaching all of that stuff. And the curriculum is put together well so that he can do that. So, like, you get a really good foundational for all of that business stuff Mm. because that's how it has to fit into their funding schemes as well. Like, it can't be game development first first business stuff second it's got to cover all of the benchmarks for that rto stuff um, so you, you get a lot out of it it's just there's always more right
0: like yeah. <laughs> what's that <laughs> and <saying>? you mentioned <laughs> you know the 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 light of the bright burns in the library of knowledge the more the bigger you realize it is, or something like that. Like the more <laughs> you learn, the more you realize you don't know.
2: Where do you get your quotes from, Alex? I don't know Sopranos, <laughs> <laughs> my malapropisms, the inside of a Domino's box. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned uh, hyper casual. Is that so? That's the primary focus. Like, and and what was the decision behind um, focusing on that as well?
1: I mean, we're a new team was the initial decision it's like we can we can make one game and we can do that over the next four years and we can be starving artists for that period of time and and have no content to show for it or we can acknowledge that like most startups don't get past two to three years so by the end of that we want as much content as possible so that everyone knows that we are kick-ass devs yeah so sure. that if it blows up we can still get work um mm-hmm. It just turned out that like turns out we can get a lot of content out, and if I can't turn that into money, then what the hell's wrong with me <laughs> mm.
2: so and and you mentioned um this this other project now that you've got, which uh, I can't remember what the name was because I like to it um, <laughs> <laughs> the one um that you you said you were getting uh, or you needed funding for to to continue with um is that the route? that you want to go down is to get put, like go to a publisher or I saw on LinkedIn, you're you you you're also looking for investment. So is that kind of tied in together?
1: Yeah. So and the investment one's kind of a no brainer for us. Like all of the publish- uh, publishers we would engage with are very much like you're going to give us lots of things and then we'll publish your game anyway. So there's no real difference fundamentally between them and an investor. Mm-hmm. Um But the Ereptius, like, it's just a different model. It's much more in line with like you need to spend a couple of years making this before you can release it because it's it's a visual novel. It's all about like horror and, and that slow progression and it's going to be delivered in chapters and a bunch of other stuff. So it's just like a huge amount of art and to prioritize it means no other project would get made. Mm. So yeah. unless we get that paid for so that we can hire more artists to do it, we just sort of have to... Have what we have,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 I guess the from a business perspective, like, is the strategy to continue with um, hyper casual stuff? Is it or is it, and, and that's like your own product, or is it like looking down the path of uh, doing re- work for hire and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah, so we actually we do do work for hire at the moment. All right, yep. we picked up a couple of contracts this year, um, which helps pay the bills and makes everything work.
2: What's that? What's that balance been like?
1: Uh, having eight devs i think makes it a lot easier than it does for most other small studios um it means that you can have more than one thing going on at the same time hmm. uh, you know it's it's client work <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, it's not as sexy as game dev you you go off and you make someone else's games and you do what they want and then they tell you to do things that you would disagree with and you just do it anyway because they're the ones paying the bills. Yeah. And they decided to ignore you when you said it was a bad idea. So <laughs> And
2: and and what was it like sort of approaching them and uh, you know getting that introduction being a new team or you know not I guess having a couple like runs on the board but like not you know being super established
1: there's a lot of hawks out there people who see a startup and they're like we're going to take advantage of this Um, at the moment we have a bunch of legal nonsense with one of our clients who um, they came into it thinking that we were going to upskill their own staff so they could make games real fast Um, they wanted a game they wanted six games done in a month and like then in the middle of that project they changed the art pipeline they're like we're going to supply the art which meant that everything was late Uh, And so we got to the end of that contract and we're like, so guys, we've done our time and you have the games, but because you made these mistakes, um, we're leaving now Mm. and the contract's complete. You need to pay your bill. And they went, oh, um, you didn't complete your contract. So we're only paying you half the bill. And then it turns out that unless you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, big businesses can get away with that and they will just lie to do it. It's nuts. I've seen just unmitigated nonsense from these people for mm. the last four months. It's crazy.
2: Yeah. Um, and what was the, I guess, like the key lesson um out of that? Was it like, not, don't do business with people like that again, or?
1: There was a lot. Like we, they signed a contract with us. So, we were like, ah, oh, they're, this is the terms of the contract these are the deliverables we've done this it's very clear so there's no way they'll they'll do anything ridiculous um and we've then done hundreds of hours extra for them to try and make this as easy as possible and all that stuff and they came away from the other side of it being like no we're still not going to pay half your bill and we don't care that we sign this and blah blah blah. so on our end like we vet our clients a lot more now Mm -hmm. um and like all of our documentation is updated the way we work with clients is much more structured so that there are like very clear milestones and very clear points they have to pay us and like we didn't want to work like that because it's really strict it's like game development is not a strict process Mm. but it means that we don't ever have to deal with this nonsense again and that's good
0: <laughs> without going into you know who who it is or any kind of detail are these the kind of companies that you see uh on the instagram ads that are like they make those weird night puzzle games <laughs> we got to get the
2: gold and they get covered in lava and and, it, and the ad looks nothing like the actual game
1: yeah, yeah yeah no actually like um it taught me a lot about i don't know how these are the type of people who would take it very poorly if i made any indication of who i was talking about but sure. like people who are very big on marketing sure and like that kind of thing are, are gonna be issues straight off the bat sure, uh, sure i think because they get so used to presenting them like they present themselves in whatever way they need to so you're sitting there being like we're straight we're honest with this, we're telling you the thing. You could ignore it or not, um, but they're sitting there being like, "Oh, we just massage every math message until it fits with what we want, sure. and we're just going to keep doing that and making assumptions rather than saying anything straight and stuff like that." So
2: they don't care about the product. It's just like get it out there, and then we can market it and and sell it just purely on marketing.
1: Yeah, or they're they're doing a marketing campaign. Yeah, which, which is why you have such tight deadlines and stuff like that. It's just it's just messy. Mm-hmm. I I would avoid that if you can.
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> Obviously,
1: was, you can't and sometimes. Was
2: it, and was that a key motivator to like getting investment or going for investment? Like is, that, is it to sort of break away from having to deal with a lot of those clients and just sort of, you know, work on your own thing and uh, have a bit of freedom on, on doing- Yeah, you your own vision on the product. Uh,
1: it's not- it's, That's one of those things, right? Hyper casual development in particular benefits most from a really broad range of experience so i don't actually think we'll stop taking contract work even with investment um because it's just it's more fuel for the fire right you can just throw more devs at problems um but on the other side of it it certainly removes what we're looking for is that peace of mind right like my devs at the moment are hustling all the time which means they're not able to update pipelines they're not able to make their processes better and that means that, like, that's a frustrating situation to be in. It makes us less good at our job in the long run. So, if we can get that peace of mind, that'll solve a lot of problems.
2: Mm, For sure. And I saw you put together a a pretty um, uh, cool… All-star lineup. Yeah, all-star lineup, let's call it, the Industry Advisory Board. (laughs) James Marshall, Philip Mays, and John Margheriti. is that how you say it?
1: Yeah, you got him.
2: Awesome. Uh, how is that? How is that like? Sort of putting that together and approaching them, and um, yeah, what, what's the value you've seen from from having those those people on on that board?
1: Oh my god, <laughs> they know. Uh, like most of us, most of my team are under twenty five. I am um, in my early thirties, but like I've come from a retail background. These guys have been doing it for like a decade or two decades. And they all just know so much useful stuff. Like one hour talking with John and suddenly we knew like a whole bunch of pitfalls that could happen with investment and and all that stuff. Like there, we originally chased them up because we're like, we know that bigger names are going to make investors more comfortable. We'd love it if these people are like actually useful to us on a, on a broader spectrum, but at a minimum they need to be big enough names that people are comfortable with the work we're doing. Uh, but actually, they just knock it out of the park in every way possible. Like, there is, it was the best decision while being the most terrifying experience I've had this year so far.
0: Sure. Yeah, because you got, I mean, Philip Mays, he started Mighty Kingdom during the global financial crisis. So, he's got to know a, a thing or two about, you know, budgeting a game <laughs> or budgeting a team. and.
1: Yeah. And yeah, and it also requires me to walk away from a bunch of because, like, like if he just comes to the conclusion that I'm a major knob, uh, then I'm probably never working with the biggest studio in the country again. So, yeah. <sighs>
2: yeah. and and I mean, I, I know that I think even when uh, Phil Mays started out, a lot of his strategy was like build as many games as quickly as possible and just get better, like iterate. Have you have you seen uh, or have you taken any other things or anything similar or any advice from, from Phil on, you know, building it and growing it and, you know, building good product?
1: Yeah, so it's complicated because we brought them on. We try to walk a very fine line with Philip because we don't want a situation where, um He feels like we're leaning too much on his MK status. Mm -hmm. Um, So we brought them on specifically around investment. So that's generally where we keep those queries for the time being. Um, I'd love to pick his brain about everything else, but I want a longer time frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that everyone's, he knows where we stand. We know where he stands. No one has to worry about that sort of thing. Like it's, really generous of Philip to give us his time, so we don't want to abuse that mm-hmm. sort of situation. Um, the same goes for John and James. Like, yeah, um, for sure. it's, they have a lot to tell us, but they have a lot to tell us right now about investment, so that's where we keep our queries.
0: Actually, Costa, because yeah, I remember when, um, when I met you, you had a- with your startup, you had an advisory board. Is there something that you found coming out of the end that might be useful for David now or
2: something that you've learned? interviewing me um yeah i mean you know like david you mentioned like you leverage you get to leverage the not only the i guess let's say status or let's say you know yeah if if they're people that are well known in the industry then you're going to be perceived well in the industry and the other thing that i got that was pretty valuable was the networks of of Mm -hmm. those people like you can get an introduction you know i was doing a startup in uh in aerospace industry and having like some person that knows a contact to, you know, Airbus and Boeing, like some of the biggest um, aerospace companies and just being able to like get an email or a contact straight into the exact person you want to speak to, like that's that's powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, if it's different in, in games, um, but yeah, just even having that and then also having them as a sounding board, like that you can just say every you know 3 to 6 months you, you touch base with them all or you touch base with them individually and just chat to them and and they tell you like yeah this is a dumb idea or this is cool uh you know keep going in this way or what about this and and that sort of stuff like it's kind of you don't you don't li- you know you don't uh take everything that they tell you as like gospel but it's just like another point of view that you can take on and uh, go from there
1: mm. and that yeah like a 100% uh, just getting that insight is really important
2: yeah for sure and those and those people they, they have that experience that they got the like you said they got the 20 years behind them that you know they've done the mistakes they've they've screwed up they've come back from it and recovered so yeah you want to listen to those kind of people
1: exactly you you want that that benefit you don't want to squander it or misuse it or anything like that. You just got to come out the other side being like, fuck, yeah, this was all good. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not sure swearing is allowed on your Nah, you can, like, swear. Hey, okay. <laughs> you can swear. You can swear. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Um, what,
2: uh, a question I had actually, like what, it, what, like, from now that you've done a couple of games or Mini Mammoth has, has done a couple of games, what, what have you learned or what has the team learned from, you know, each product, like, is there a certain lesson or is there certain pitfalls that you've experienced in the company just from, you know, these um, games that you've produced in the past, like, you know, two years?
1: Too many to count. Mm. (laughs) Um, Like, I can talk about my recent ones because I've been project managing Ocean Harvest recently and like, there was a bunch of communication errors that happened early in its development. And then we also had a client at that time, um, which made that whole mess go a bit sideways. And then we, ne- we needed to get it done by a specific time because it was like a, a game jam submission. It was a month-long game jam submission mm-hmm. for a publisher in France. Um, and so it, it just sort of snowballed without that project management. So by the time I started taking like proper charge of it, it we were running to catch up. Um, and what I found was like there's a lot of nuance to how you can do project management project to project. And then it also depends on your team. Uh, another thing is like early in the piece, we had a lot of different artists doing a lot of different jobs and we never had anyone give them like a unified vision. So we changed that. So now our, um, we have an art director. Her name's Anya Berhoff and she's all over that sort of stuff. As a result, like the games look a more, lot more consistent in the way they come across. Mm. Um, and all of these lessons are like things other people have already had to learn, but you have to learn them at some point internally if you don't go and work with a new studio. So that's, there is a lot of lessons. It's part of the reason we picked making lots of games rather than one game. Mm, for sure. And, and,
0: ocean- and, and, and w- oh, oh, on, so on. I I was say the ocean harvest, is that your, um, was that your first 3d title? Cause traditionally it's all 2d what you guys work on.
1: I don't think it was our first. I think there are a couple of prototypes put together just before we started ocean harvest. Yeah. Um, yeah. but ocean harvest deadline pushed it out the door earlier sure. and, and, i don't know i really love ocean harvest um and we get to spend more time on it than our other games because it's kind of a niche genre at the moment it's, it's arcade idle rather than just hyper casual which means that you spend longer building it and hope that it still makes you lots of money
0: yeah <laughs> so talking with that um consistent art style is uh 3d a, a path you guys are going to go down
1: yeah so um both our artists were mainly trained in 3d we picked 2d initially because we're like well this allows us to do more consistent games mm. um and get the art out quicker but apparently the market just isn't a big fan of, of 2d games if you talk to any publishers um they want 3d products so we made the the switch and adopted some of the I don't know, less quality assured methods of development that our peers take um which we've had to learn new pipelines to try and balance out because our peers can push out a lot of product fast, just like we can, but like they push out really dodgy product. And so we're trying to balance the needs of getting prototypes as fast as possible versus like, we want to make good games. Mm. (laughs) It's very difficult to find that balance, which is the other reason why we're chasing investment because we think there's more value in the quality product rather than the fast pushed out. Like, we think there's more value in a very fast product that is made to a high quality. If, um, but we need room to do that.
0: Is there um, the ability to reuse assets in your game? Like not straight up copy, but you know you have a generic looking shape that you put greebling on top of or something like that. And then you've got a brand new thing and like you just develop your own library so you can pump out these games faster.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's always ongoing in the background. Um, originally, it was code was more consistently put together that way. Um, Like we've got a lot of pipelines for getting a product out onto the shop floor, out onto the Android store. Um, And we've got like other ones for consistent little bits of design that you see across most hypercasuals because you your audience want those things. So you want to get them out and get them out good. Mm. So you, we build pipelines for that stuff. And then we started to notice like art. Um, in particular, you'd get like low poly packs off the asset store and then you discover it's like low poly style while it's busily melting people's phones. <laughs> so <laughs> and then we've had to to task artists to build like less melty polygons and stuff like that. It's just finding the balance. Yeah, sure.
2: I mean, yeah, actually, that was definitely that was definitely one of the issues that we had when we were doing uh 3D trying to do three D games on mobile it was just like balancing that. Yeah. They're literally your phone gets hot and it yeah. and it starts to yeah. Melt your ocean
1: harvest had like so many problems with making people's i'm pretty sure it currently has a six minute per session play time solely because at the six minute mark it seems to put phones into like serious overdrive of heat and people would turn their phone like turn the game off because it's telling it's too hot oh uh, found out that switching a camera to orthographic can make a big difference oh, wow. <laughs> oh yeah, cause yeah you're
0: not getting as much in the scene
1: that was part of it, but I think it was doing a bunch of other stuff around draw calls and materials and all, all manner of weird little bits and bobs. Like the improvement was too much for it to just be how much it was drawing. Sure. And since then, our programmers have spent a month trying to make it better. So at this point, it's like magic, and I don't know what they've done. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's the best kind. <laughs> what what kind of uh, data you mentioned? Like six minute playtime. What kind of data are you collecting, and and how does that? Like, do you have a big process there or do you have a little bit of a process of, like, feeding that data in or, you know, analyzing? Um, do you do play testing, and, and how does that work or is that something that you want to do in the future?
1: Yeah, the casual market is, like, built on testing. Um, what the publishers have, have positioned themselves to do nowadays is provide free testing for everyone. Unfortunately, we know that they also use that knowledge for their own ends, nefarious or otherwise, like that's how that goes. They spend a hundred bucks throwing out your game in front of a hundred people. So that makes sense. Um, But what we found is like through our own testing, we can do a lot more with a lot less uh, because what our publishers partners are often focused on first is the cost per install, which is a, an entirely marketing-driven metric. Mm. Um, we're game developers, so we can do cost per install, like advertising and creatives and stuff. But it's really not—it's not our jam. Mm. Um, so we're looking at things like retention and stuff like that. The prevailing theory for us is that if we can get a game that's like really sticky, that's probably gonna market relatively well without too much effort making the creatives. Um, so we found that like where our partners can do like a hundred dollar test and maybe get 80 people and you can't test your attention to save your life. You can put out 25 bucks, run a worldwide market and get 300 or 400 people playing your game and get much better data from that. Um, so that means if we have a lot of like systems for getting data, the type of data we get is all about like, your play sessions. I know there's probably organizations out there that are like, we want to know like your name and whether your nose is hairy and how many children you have and stuff like that. But all we care about is like how long did you play the game in this session and did you come back to the game a couple of times? And then like from there, you build out your, your metrics and your analytics just like everyone else does.
0: Yeah, the marketing, marketing metrics with... Um from a business point of view and not a creative point of view, are uh, very different things. From a creative point of view, yeah. you actually want results. So, like, you know, Steam's results on the back end, um, you want to know how long they've played the game for. Um, You know, uh, download is one thing. Did they actually install it? Did they actually, actually play it because it's easy to, you know, download a free game or something like that, where from a business point of view, they have people to impress. So, they... They don't look for the unique downloads. They look for or like unique plays. They look total, for total, total plays, yeah. yeah, so they can tell their higher ups that this was a,
1: a worthy investment or something like that. And you see a similar thing with publishers in the hyper casual market. Like there are a lot of very unscrupulous publishers who are very, very, very focused on getting your game into that top ten, and they don't care how little money you make out of that process because the thing they're focused on is telling everyone else they got more games into the top ten downloads. Sure. And so, like, there are a lot of hyper-casual developers who just get run out of the market by stuff like yeah. that. Like, they've got successful games and no revenue from it. It's nuts.
0: Who are you guys looking to... Um, like, what developers in, the, in your space do you look at and you're like, that would be great if Mini Mammoth were... Benchmark against? Yeah, benchmark.
1: Um, I mean, we tend to punch ag- above our weight. So, we look at, like oh, it's been a while since I did the, the checks, but Voodoo is normally in that list just looking at their work. Um, we look at who they're publishing and stuff like that. Um, most of the publishers have internal, like, dev teams. Sure. So, like, in a long enough timeline, our goal is to disrupt that part of the market, not by becoming a publisher, but by changing the way developers have to engage with publishers. Um, but we have to get to that point first. So we tend to look at studios that have had a lot more time than us to develop their pipelines and try and hit their their goals because if you're hitting above your weight, then you're doing well.
2: Yeah. And and uh, something um, I was thinking about actually was with these hyper-casual games, what's you talk about like a pipeline and a, a bit of a process. What's it like um, from a game design perspective documenting? And, you know, you get these people who write game design documents and, you know, they take like months on it in such a fast environment or like a fast turnaround, how do you document or how do you, how do you get those mechanics across? Um, and yeah, communicate that.
1: In a perfect world, we were, we have templates for all of our documentation and it would all be filled out. Mm. Um, but our prototypes get made in a week and like it's one developer per prototype a lot of the time. So you got six prototypes going at the same time and you're the sole dev on your one. So our documentation doesn't get filled out <laughs> and it won't get filled out until we come back to it. And that's fine. Cause it's a week's worth of dev. Like, yeah, you can do like our ana- analytics plans don't change much. Um, our target audience is, the hyper casual market which is anyone between the ages of 18 to 45 both genders who travel places or want like one to five minute gameplay sessions and want to come back to it like the the hyper casual genres branch from arcade games to puzzle games to all manner of other weird stuff so like you don't need a target audience for the time being unless you want to like write two sentences saying, oh, I think the puzzle audiences will really get into this. So then you look at like you could do really in-depth breakdowns of mechanics and systems, but w- why would you? You should be building them. Mm. You've you've got a week. Mm. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it, it
0: changes. We found it changes from country to country. Like uh, I can't remember which way around it is, but like the number one genre of video game in America is puzzle games, but here it's not. Um, mm. So as you're saying, you know, you've got that huge range of casual, uh, hi- hyper casual gamers, but within there, you've got those genres um, that, like, you know, a puzzle hyper casual might not be interested in a, you know, a, a an action adventure hyper casual.
1: A runner, just a runner, just run, yeah. run, runner. <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, it's just. <sighs> You could spend your entire life doing paperwork in this job, and it would be a worthwhile and valuable endeavor. But if you're the only developer on the game and you already have a clear vision, and you've got a week to make it, I wouldn't mm. fuck around with your paperwork. It's just not worth the effort. You've got to get the game made.
2: Yeah. Um, and you you spoke about like having six prototypes going on at once. Is that is is the process? Then you know, here's an idea. All six go out, build it, and then the best one wins, or what's this? Yeah.
1: So the recent, the recent side of this coin is like with partners who are publishers, they have their own lists of products, um, and then like every other person in their dog wants some game to put their ad mediation in, or some other bloody thing, or you're, you're building a relationship with a new publisher, so you promise them a game. So like some games are already promised to publishers. Some are passion projects because like you can make it in a game for a target audience. You can do it in a week, make the passion project. Um, some games are like niche explorations of like arcade idol or some other weird sort of hyper casual genre that you think you can get the game made in a week. And then you just, you just make it as fast as you can and hope that it goes well. And like, cause the thing about the hyper casual market at least is like, if you learn your lesson from Flappy Bird, The lesson is that literally any weird thing might just resonate with people. So that's your goal is to try and find those gems. And that's a lot. It's really hard to know how the market would have shaped up if it didn't have hundreds of millions of dollars in it being thrown at it by publishers. Because it just would be very different. Like, I am watching publishers make Arcade Idol be a genre. Because every year they run like two to three game jams where they get a bunch of developers to build Arcade Idol type games. And for the reference, Arcade Idol is like a really stripped down idol game um, that fits with some of the other genre bits and pieces. And they throw hundreds of millions of dollars into those games, which means that they're going to have many installs and then they're going to be in the top 10 downloads. And then other developers are going to see them and be like, That's a niche I could get into. And suddenly there is a new genre, but it's not because like a bunch of game developers thought that was a good idea. It's because the publisher went, well, if we throw enough money at it, maybe it'll exist
2: when we're Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. It's like extrinsic motivations coming from like the publishers wanting it to be a thing. Exactly.
1: On the other side of that coin, like arcade isle is a cool game, uh, game genre. I like ocean harvest. I think it's cute. (laughs)
0: That is definitely cute. So no, uh, knowing those things that you're saying the um you know it's uh the paperwork's time consuming but you see that they're coming up they're just creating their own genres how do you see mini mammoth progressing like what's what's your vision for it um and how do you realistically see it progressing
1: um well so obviously there's two. there's the nothing happens <laughs> and we all go and get jobs <laughs> elsewhere um which like at this point, the amount of work every one of my devs has completed in two years' time, like that's perfectly plausible, and I have really good jobs for it. Um, and you got to be realistic. But the version of life we want to live is um, one of these games takes over or an investor gets involved and, and puts a four-year runway in front of us. And then you will see something like 230 games built from Mini Mammoth Games, and we'll have a bunch of devs going over all of our old product to increase the quality and and make it fit with their standards. And then we'll cross promote across all those games and, and start cycling our audience and just like setting standards for our peers that they won't be able to ignore because that means that like the market will have to get more ethical about the way it behaves because it's competing with an organization built on our values, which is honesty, integrity, compassion and respect and those are like the drivers of all the decisions we make which means that all of our peers need to start thinking that way because we're making them look bad if Mm. they don't and it means that publishers will have to engage with people differently because otherwise they just won't have the content they want and in the long term scaling up doubling our size would be nice maybe tripling our size Mm. Mm. you know that'd be cool um and then you get even more games and we'll just keep going and then from there we'll move out into other genre like out of our market's like hyper casual is nice we like it here um but we do want to make bigger products as well um we're like we're business minded but we are creatives first uh, i'm a designer before i'm a ceo and hyper casual games are cool but there's some i want to make a skyrim one day
0: yeah sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you you're using uh, unity i imagine yeah, yeah yeah have you and um Is the plan just you're sticking with Unity? Have you are you looking at Unreal Five and being like, Oh, I could make that Skyrim so easily in that? (laughs) Um
1: like I would like to work with Unreal. Uh right now it would be a risk to my business because that pipeline we built to get games built in a week wouldn't apply anymore. Um But the other thing is like Epic doesn't necessarily align very well with our values either. Unity are very quiet. They're not very loud. They also don't do anything particularly obnoxious. And so I don't have to deal with any of that. I could just be like, "No, oh, they're fine. They're helping out small devs. They're expanding. They're, they're easy to interact with as, a, as an engine. Most devs in mobile currently use Unity because Unreal was kind of painful to work with for a long time. Like I'm happy to explore. I'd love to explore some of the open source other engines, um, but like, got to get there first. Got to get to the point where you can do that sort of
2: exploratory work. What's the um? um I haven't looked too much into hyper casual. What's the main way of you know monetization in hyper casual games? Is it ads? Ad revenue?
1: It is. It's it's a hundred percent ads. You're looking at an audience who they log, they open your game, they play it for five to ten minutes, uh, then they close it. They go away and they come back a couple of days later and they open again. So like, you'd love to give them in-app purchases, but you're also expecting them to only be around for like two weeks. Mm. So most folks don't really engage with them. Um, A few do. You'd love for more to engage with it, but like, here's what it is. Um, It's mostly ads which means that's why ad mediators also mm. come to you and be like, please give us a game so we can tell everyone how good our ad mediation <sighs> services are.
2: How, how can you, like, is it is it difficult, um, you know, you, you mentioned having these kind of values within Mini Mammoth. Is it, how do you try to instill those into your games given, you know, ads run on on them and, and like the, a lot of the people that you're dealing with, you know, they, they just... They just care at the end of the day, like that, that you're going on, you're on, you're going on, like the user going on your game and then clicking on their ads. You know what I mean? Like how do you instill those values, um, into like when making games like that?
1: You got to be able to say No which sounds ridiculous, I'm sitting here saying, please, I want money and safety and all the rest of it. But like we put integrity second. So it's honesty and then it's integrity for a reason. And like, I'm always saying that our values are aspirational, right? Because it's kind of impossible to make a person have honesty and integrity a hundred percent of the time without them screwing up their life. But like you still need to try and hit those marks. So if if I get a contract in front of me, that's going to make it hard for me to manage the values of the company. I've got to say no. Um, I had one come in from a publisher and like, they would given us the runaround for months. And then they finally like started engaging with us because they noticed how many games we had and we had 3d games and they were suddenly really excited. And before you can work with them, they have this contract that's just mad. It's like, if you do well with a game, suddenly they are the only publisher you can work with all your other games have to stop being with anyone else um they're your exclusive publisher and you can't work on any other projects you only have to work on that game that did well and they also own everything you're putting out at that time and they own everything you put on their their platform i'm just sitting there going guys this is this is a bit much let's Let's not. Can you change any of these bits? And they, of course, went, no, we can't change. We them. Oh, that's a pity. Guess we can't work with you. Bye. At the end of the day, publishers don't have content unless you give them yes. content.
2: That's, that's when you That's when you spin out a uh, subsidiary company and you <laughs> yeah. sign <up> with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you have to stoop to their level, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's what it is. In terms of like treating our customers bad the other advantage is that like like you look at the values and like oh that's hard to stick to but like our values make everything a lot easier like if our customers can trust that we are honest and integrity and we have compassion and respect then that means that they're not going to just leave at the drop of that our staff aren't going to just up and bail like i have a team who have been with us now for two years and none of us are going anywhere like that's because we know that at the end of the day, we're doing the right thing and no one has to feel bad about that when they go home. Like our values are not a weakness. They are strength, and they make us better because like even in the context where it's like, Oh, just feed your customers as many ads as you want. The math is always going to be, if you can keep a customer, that is cheaper than trying to get a new customer. And you're always going to make more money by not running your customers off.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, what kind of games you got going on next? What's uh, what's in the pipeline, as you mentioned earlier?
1: Um, I, I've i been working on a Prototype or uh, Arcade Idol that's like... Did anyone ever play the Warriors? At oh, the Xbox game? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, the original... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, like a really stripped down PG version of that, Arcade Idol. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's really <laughs> nice. cool. You run around, you take turf, and you beat guys up with big <laughs> gangs. It's good time. Um, obviously, we've got Ocean Harvest. That's got another update coming in the next two to three weeks. and We're hoping to address like a lot of the problems that <laughs> have cropped up over the last three months. It's one of those weird things. Like You build a game real fast, but you put it in front of customers, and they need to play it, and you need to get all that data, and then you need to update it. And then everyone's going, well, your game, when's the update coming out? It's like, well, that takes mm-hmm. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, what else have we got? I think there's a bunch of different, well, we have placement students come through all the time. So you've always got new games every couple of weeks. Uh, package panic is one of my favorites that came from one of our devs, Tyler that's out at the moment. Um, what is it? There's a dual puzzle sorter, which is a terrible name. It's one of our placement students. They made that game. It's so good. And I was so bummed when, the metrics came in and no one cared about it, you should definitely give it a play. Yeah.
2: Oh <laughs> what what's um I know we we touched on this before, but like you mentioned you know you put the game out and then you get this feedback what's the sort of main mechanism of you getting the feedback? Is it like people you know leaving reviews or is it like you looking at the data or is it a combination
1: it's yeah it's it's both of those like um we found with ocean harvest people care a lot more, which is cool. So we get uh, like, we actually getting more feedback from our customers who are playing those games, which is super handy. Cause like a lot of the time they're like, Hey, it's melting my phone. Well, that's really helpful for us yeah. to find out. Then when we check uh like performance and stuff, we're like, Oh, six minutes is it's heating up to super hot. Oh, that seems to align with the fact that our average playtime per session is six mm-hmm. minutes long. So like you, you got to use all the bits and bobs, but like every, Every mobile developer will tell you the same thing in that respect. Like they're all, they're all over that
2: stuff. Yeah, definitely.
1: I can't imagine I'm saying anything new <laughs> to anyone. <laughs>
0: How's the process been with uh, you? Said you had um, placements come through. How's that process been?
1: Really good. Um, one of the things that we're all pretty keen to make sure goes well uh, is placements, because when we went through AIE. They've got a very strict policy around how they engage with studios. Like students do not work on commercial yep. work, um, which means that there's very few game development placements available to AIE students. Um, and I'm going to assume it's probably the same across the board. I've had some. I've had a student come to us from SAE who needed a placement, otherwise she wouldn't get a diploma. Um, So next year, we're going to explore some of the other educational institutions and see if they need placements. Um, We've already talked a bit to CDW and that sort of thing, because concept artists could always come and do six weeks with us. Um, But the process is really positive for everyone. Like my devs get a chance, they get some perspective on how far they've come, which is always useful. Um, The students now have actual game development studios on their resume, and we... Like, those pipelines and stuff I was talking about earlier that allow you to do rapid game dev, well, they get tested pretty harshly by people who are still students who need to use them. Like, they're not even full-time professional game devs. They're coming in and we're being like, yeah, make a game in two weeks. And you know, two weeks later, maybe they have to come to me and ask for like a Mm one-week extension, but most of the time they get a game done and they get it done really fast. And then they get another one done and then they get a third one done and then they go back to class. and (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so that's wait so he's saying uh, three games in like six weeks oh my god yeah
1: and they're only doing two days with us a week two and just do nine to five two days a week they do the full six week Um AAE did offer them on that because AAE has a, a three day week and then a two day week so like you could totally take them on the off week and we're like no I think they'll need that for their study uh, let's just keep them to yeah, two nice. days
0: I guess that goes back to your values nah
1: that is a big part of it. Um, we get some students who are like, I'm going to work on this at home. I'm going to do hours outside. And we're like, please don't like, we're not going to stop you, but also that's not a good work life yeah. balance. You need to actually maintain downtime. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's really
0: good to bring that. Um, as always, as we uh, round it out, we always ask the the guests, what, uh, what lesson do you have? What have you learned? And there's been a bunch that you've, You've told us already that you've learned going through the uh the mobile market, but what's a standout? If you know you could talk to David from two years ago, starting this, what would what would you say?
1: Um, if I could talk to me, so any anyone who wants to like be really driven behind their studio, um, you need to look outside of game development for all of the other like little skills or big skills, all the knowledge you need around like investment and networking and all like we get a lot of value out of people who have nothing to do with game development. And like, they're the people who put us onto things like advisory boards and chasing investment. And when I'm talking to investors, I'm not talking to game devs. They don't, you need to learn the language to speak to them so they get what you're talking about. So like, you'll hear things like, um, like I'm very ceo nowadays so a lot of this talk is probably like business objectives and our values are good or bad or whatever and they're really good for the company like you learn that stuff outside of game dev because when you're talking to game devs it's easy to just riff and, and chat and hang out and that's great uh, but unfortunately we're all poor so <laughs> doesn't help yeah it, does. yeah it really doesn't so you've got to get outside of your comfort zone with that one yeah right
0: yeah i mean yeah it's um i definitely yeah i didn't come from a traditional game design background costa didn't either and costa's very switched on with that stuff you you heard him say before he's from a an aerospace startup um and uh he was yeah making a, a mobile 2d 3d game and watching his process through it of uh picking up this stuff and approaching it differently it's it's real interesting watching that stuff
2: Mm, I came at it from the business, probably going into game dev, so it was the the opposite way. But mm-hmm. yeah, nah, it's always you got to learn. You definitely need to know the other stuff to be able to succeed, especially when it's your own venture. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's probably useful just in general. Like even if you you're starting at the bottom in like a studio or whatever, to know all this stuff. Like we all hate that it's about who you know, not yeah. what you know. But like it is at the moment and unless you have billions of dollars to change that situation, that's how it is. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and it's the soft skills, hey, like being able to talk to someone and just like discuss and openly, you know, tell them what your problems are and, and, and treat them, you know, well and, and all that sort of stuff. It's just like that's stuff that you don't even, you can't learn at university, you can't learn at, you know, uh, these places. So, mm. Yeah.
1: You just gotta get out there. You gotta to talk to all the big names in the local industry. That's it. They love talking to you though, so you should totally go seek out folks. I know you've you've had Dan on before and, and Susie, yeah. she's good. Um uh, those big names, those are the people all you young devs should be chasing. Don't Definitely. be scared of them. Catch
0: Dan where you still can <laughs> before he, yeah. he goes to uh <sighs> to the US. The US. Yeah. Oh uh, David, thank you so huge. much for coming on. It's good to hear good to hear how you no guys worries. work
1: and everything.
2: How can uh, people reach out and, and find Mini Mammoth?
1: Um, so I'm pretty liberal on LinkedIn. I'll I'll say yes to anyone who sends me an invite, so feel free. Um, if you go to our website, www.minimamothgames.com, you can find a contact form there. That does go through to us. Our website's kind of... It's in the middle of getting an overhaul. Um, so maybe I don't want to direct you guys. <laughs> eh, it's fine. <laughs> um, otherwise, you can email any of our devs and you'll find our emails all over the shop at this point. Um, LinkedIn is the quickest way, you'll find me or you can find Jordan or you can find Eddie. All of us are pretty okay with accepting LinkedIn invites. Um, I guess you could come out to the ABC building. Security will call me before (laughs) they're you from the building.
2: (laughs) Send a letter. Yes. (laughs) Awesome, thank you so much, David.